Welcome to the Health Leader Forge, where today's health leaders help to forge the leaders of tomorrow. I'm your host, Mark Bonica, of the University of New Hampshire's Department of Health Management and Policy and the Northern New England Association of Healthcare Executives. Our website is healthleaderforge.org, where you can find information about subscribing to the podcast, links and information related to the episode, as well as our complete archives. Today's guest is Sam Shields, the Director of Operational Excellence at Dartmouth-Hitchcock Health System. In his role as Director, Sam provides leadership and strategic planning for the Dartmouth-Hitchcock Value Institute. He has oversight of performance management, the Project Management Office, and the Value Institute Learning Center. He's responsible for developing programs and partnerships to improve patient outcomes and drive the organizational culture of the largest system in New Hampshire. In this podcast, we talk about Sam's career, which began as a chemical engineer working in specialty chemicals. Through experiences in a variety of manufacturing and production roles, Sam became an expert in supply chain management and quality and performance improvement. Like many of my guests, Sam's road to serving in healthcare has been circuitous. When he joined the Dartmouth-Hitchcock team in 2009 and returned again in 2013, he brought his extensive and diverse experience to bear on improving the functioning of the organization. I have produced two versions of this podcast, an extended version that includes our complete conversation, and an abridged version. You are listening to the abridged version. If you would like to listen to the extended version, please see our website. I hope you enjoy this podcast. Don't forget to leave us feedback on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, or wherever you may be accessing this recording. Thanks for listening. And here is Sam Shields. Welcome to The Forge, Sam. Thank you very much. Glad to be here. So you went to the University of Massachusetts and studied chemical engineering. What brought you to UMass and and why chemical engineering? Well, I grew up in the Massachusetts uh, Boston area, and when I was in high school, I really loved math and science, was, was good at it. My father was an engineer, a mechanical engineer. My grandfather before him was a metallurgical engineer, so uh, it sort of ran in the family. But I also wanted to sort of, I guess, forge my own path, right, and go and do something different. I really loved chemistry, and so I really took a liking to pursuing chemical engineering. And and back then in high school, I really didn't know anything about what it might be, but it sounded pretty cool. So uh, so the rest is history. And I ended up at UMass because it was a state school. They had a really good program for chemical engineering. Pretty small program. I mean, it's a big school, but there were only about 20 to 25 of us in the graduating class. So wow. it was kind of the best of both worlds. You get to know all of your classmates, but you've got this huge uh, university there with a lot of resources to, uh, to help you along. So it was a great experience. Yeah. Coming out of college, you went to work at Cabot Corporation in Pampa, Texas. That's a long way from Amherst. It sure Uh, is. How did you wind up in Texas? So um, when I was in college, I did an internship with a professor there. And that really was a jumping point for me to look for an internship with, uh, with different companies. And so I was lucky enough during my senior year to get an internship with Cabot Corporation in Belrica okay. at their technical center. So I worked with them for a summer, and then I got to do a little bit of work over the winter session for them as well. And then coming out of college, they were one of my job offers, along with a couple of others. All of them were outside of uh, Massachusetts area. I was going to have to leave home. But what was important to me was to get my career started and, and get on uh, get some experience under my belt. So they had a great offer for me to go to the Texas Panhandle and work in one of their in one of their plants as a production engineer. And so that's what I did. So in the same week, I got a new job. I think I got 
engaged to my wife, and then I moved. So it was, oh, it was a lot of all, stuff. all at once. Yeah. <laughs> what is a production engineer? So essentially, as a production engineer, you know, for me, it was you're assigned to a couple of different production lines at the facility, and you own basically efficiency, quality, cost around that production line end to end. And so, as a as a chemical engineer, you it's really focused on process and process improving. So process improvement is fundamental to it, and so. That's really what my job was, was overseeing, making sure that we were making high quality materials on a consistent basis and that we were continuously sort of innovating as well to make sure we were delivering value to the customer as well. Now, was this training that you got during your time at UMass or was this something you learned on the job? Sort of a combo. I mean, I think it's funny, you know, a lot of chemical engineers, I think when you're in chemical engineering school, you learn a lot about fluids and gases and processes around those and then when you go out into industry it's like 90 percent solids and i was doing solids okay so you know there's some translation you have to do there but the the cornerstone around optimizing processes and the thought process around that and really breaking it down and looking at each different component was obviously transferable i think what I had to learn about was how to lead teams, how to, you know, how to manage, how to work around the soft skills that you don't necessarily get when you're doing your undergraduate degree and, and, uh, and learning all of those aspects were, were what I had to do on the job. So in that first role, were you a supervisor right away or you? I was not, but it, that's where I started with my continuous improvement experience right there. So straight out of the gate, they assigned me a few continuous improvement teams. Okay. So Cabot Corporation was very much into total quality management and that means you know getting employees at the front lines engaged, identifying opportunities for improvement and doing PDSAs around those improvements. So I was leading, leading teams across the, uh, across the facility doing that kind of work, and that was my first foray into quality improvement as well. So I learned it really early on, and it became sort of foundational of how I thought about things and my philosophy, uh, you know, leading into my philosophy around leadership as well. Okay, so you were... So you were a, a leader of teams, but not a supervisor at that point. Correct. Okay. How was that as a young person, you know, brand new out of school? I assume these the people you were leading on these teams were more senior to you. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, these are these are guys in their and women in their you know forties, fifties, with a lot of experience. Uh-huh. Uh, and so you, if you're going to be effective, you can't come in thinking that you you know you're the you're the, the snot-nosed kid out of college knowing every all the answers, right? That's not going to get you anywhere. It was really trying to bring out their knowledge and making sure that uh, you can you can bring out the best ideas from them and engage them in the right way so that they can work around doing these PDSAs and helping to support the overall organizational goal. So it was a challenge. And, uh, yeah, a lot of early um, early failures and then leading to successes by learning from those failures, no what? doubt. What did Cabot do to kind of help you build the skills you needed to lead those teams? Cabot did a lot. I mean, this was this was in the 90s, and there was a pretty formal training around team building, around quality improvement work. We were partnering with some of our suppliers like Xerox and others around root cause analysis. So there was a lot of training that was done in order to build up these teams. And, and the facility I was at was really dedicated to that. The general manager was dedicated to it. And so... We would go, I would go to training around root cause analysis, but also with the teams, with the operators and the folks from maintenance and across the organization as well. So we were all learning together and so having a singular vision around what 
what continuous improvement really meant to us and what it really looked like for us as well, which was really important. What is root cause analysis? So root cause analysis is really just, the reason it's called sort of root is, if you think about a weed growing is the symptoms of, uh, of a problem, the root is really that, that core root of what's really causing the problem. And if you can eliminate that cause, then you really eliminate the other symptoms and other things of the problem. And, uh, you know, I think all organizations struggle with, are you dealing with the symptoms or are you dealing with the root cause of the problem? And how do you, how do, you do it in a methodical, disciplined way so that you really are eliminating the, the problem? So the people that were on the teams you were working in, these were machine operators or pro they were they were uh, the well, they were chemical plant operators. Yeah. Okay. So I mean, it's a it's a continuous um, continuous process in the chemical plant that they're they're monitoring different areas. They might be packing out in certain areas, moving materials around, that sort of thing. And but these are the guys doing the work. These are the guys monitoring the process. You know, um, we were we were really big into statistical process control as well. So they had control charts across the plant. Some of them were automated some of them were manual so really it was all around monitoring the process looking for variability for special causes and variability these kinds of things again which kind of ties into the Six Sigma aspect of it so under that guise back then it was total quality management which later sort of morphed into Lean Six Sigma okay I wanted to ask you so, so it was TQM or total quality management that yeah. was the, what it was called yeah. at the time yeah and you had training in that Looking back on on those skill sets, has a lot changed in that uh, in the approaches? No, I don't. I don't think the approaches have changed that much. The tenants are the same too. Yeah, I mean, it's yeah. it's getting people involved that are doing the work and bringing to bear their knowledge around it is still so important. It's still about eliminating waste. I, I think. I mean, in my opinion, it, it seems like that those all, all of those things sort of came together, and then we call them different things, but they're still foundationally the same. But we have added new tools to it as well. You know, so if you think about the lean side, that's really around eliminating waste and identifying the eight wastes, and and that was coming about while we were doing TQM in the '90s as well. Of course, Japan had been doing it for a while, but I mean, it 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 all sort of came together, I think, into Lean Six Sigma eventually. Okay. You were promoted to global supply chain manager uh, for Cabot in 2004. And That's that right. brought you back up to Massachusetts. That did. That's okay. correct. Yeah. So, so tell me about that position. That yeah. About? So that was, was that? That, that was a new position that was created within the business, uh, the specialty chemical business. And that was really, you know, basically two, two pieces to that. The first was core ownership of the sales and operations planning process for the business. And so that's a, that's a process that really looks at optimizing the demand plan and the supply plan and then marrying those together so that the business can execute against what they're, what they're trying to do. So that was one component of it is running that process, continuously improving that process globally. The second component of the role was building out and implementing what we call business rules back then. And business rules were really a way to trying to optimize lead times, inventory levels, and service across your customer base. And so if you think about different customers that a business might have, what we ended up doing was um, segmenting those customers into gold, well, platinum, gold, and silver customers. And each level, depending on what kind of customer they were, had a different level of service that we wanted to guarantee to those to those customers. And that could mean minimum order quantities they could do. Uh, it also meant what they could have for lead times as well. And then that led into how much safety stock we'd be carrying 
for those different types of customers to make sure that we had a certain level of fill rate uh, for them as so well. So you're using a couple of terms. So let me say lead time. What is yeah. Lead time? So lead time is basically the time from the order to delivery. Okay. Depend. I mean, people can define it in different ways, but it's fundamentally that. That was how we how we defined it. Yeah. So from the time that you call in and say, "I need this product." what is the lead time we're going to give you in order to deliver that product okay. to you. And so if I was a platinum customer, you would have a faster lead time. Yeah, we would have. We, what we did is uh, in, the, in sort of the back end, uh, as we set up our inventory levels, we would set those to make sure that we had a certain service level target on that, right? So in many cases, what we said with those customers is a two-day lead time. So that means that we're going to have to carry a certain level of what we'd call safety stock in order to support that, support that lead time going forward, which includes, you know, variability, right? So if they have variability in demand, you've got to You've got to set your target so that it, it takes that into account as well, so that you know 99% of the time you've got enough inventory to satisfy their need. So there's an assumption there that you're going to be able to make some in, make some new product, but you'll also have some product on hand just in case they call. That's right, and then so, so this is yeah, product. and this is the other piece that drives back into the sales and operations planning process is then that has to drive what you're doing for scheduling and production across the organization, and then also where you're going to put your material, right? So you're I had four different facilities across the world that were making different kinds of material, and you've got to really look at your total network of where you're going to place all that material to make sure that you can maintain your lead times that uh, that you've promised to your customers. Wow. Okay. So in 2007, you left Cabot after 12 years and made your first foray up up here to, to Lebanon, New Hampshire, where we are actually sitting today. So uh, though the first company you actually were involved with was Timken Aerospace Corporation. What is Timken and, and what did you do for them? Yeah, that's correct. So I, I left Timken and uh, moved my family up here. And with Timken, it was a sort of materials manager slash supply chain manager role. Timken is, at that time actually, was uh, still a combined company. They've since split up into two different separate companies. At the time, though, they had a, a large aerospace business and then also a steel business as well. And so the facility up here in Lebanon was all aerospace materials. It was uh, ball bearings that go into you know, anything from a missile to, a, to the Osprey um, helicopter, plane, whatever you yeah. want to call it. Yeah. And so as a supply chain manager, it's a very similar role to what I had at Cabot, where it, was, uh, it wasn't as global, but uh, it's still a core portion of that role was uh, leading the sales and operations planning process for that side of the business relative to the Lebanon facility. And then also I added in uh, purchasing contracting as well to that side as well. So how was, in particular, quality management different? between the organizations? Yeah, great question. So uh, the nature of those two businesses is quite a bit different in that when you're talking about Timken Aerospace, that's a, that's a you know, military spec quality that needs to be maintained and also FAA certifications, right? So at Cabot, we had a really strong quality improvement program but it wasn't, if I think about it, that versus Timken. Timkins was on steroids for obvious reasons, right? So there are a lot more checks and documentations needing to be done all through the process of manufacturing for Timken because, you know, it's going into uh, helicopters, it's going into jet engines, selling to people like GE and Rolls-Royce and others. And so uh, maintaining of standards was, was really critical, critically important for that. 
So you, you're mentioning now Lean Six Sigma. Was yeah. that was that term actually used at Timken? At it that was, point? yes. And it was, was that your first exposure to that? I mean, it wasn't my first exposure. It was my first okay. exposure to an organization that was calling it what it was sure. and really trying to focus on implementing it as it is in terms of the sort of classic sense of Lean Six Sigma, where you're starting with value streams and looking at the waste and identifying the waste and then you know, using a lot of visual management boards and, uh, and what we call Kanban, so visual cues to show where the demand and flow is in the organization. The other thing I'd point out too is these are very different manufacturing processes. So Cabot is a continuous flow process with reactors that are running basically 24-7. Timken was very much more a job shop, so the material worked through different cells across the, across the site. You know, it starts out as a metal bar, it gets machined down into a, into a bearing, and then there's all kinds of finishing steps around that. And so it's not a, it's not a continuous process flow. Okay. That's what you want to get to, but that's not what you have uh, inherently in the process. So the challenges were far greater when you're, when you're dealing with something like the Timken production process around how do you visualize flow, see it, understand how it's, how it's doing, and what the mechanisms are to control it as well. Whereas with Timken, I mean with Cabot, you know, you were you were sitting at a reactor control board and monitoring and seeing how it was working and, and monitoring continuously uh, the different inputs to it. So very different, very different uh, manufacturing so process. It, so help help me understand because I'm not a manufacturing guy. So so when you say continuous flow, yeah, it's a it's a chemical process that's sort of continuously going Correct. and there's something coming out at the end. Correct. The, On the, the front product. end, you've got natural gas, air, oil, all being sent into a reactor. You manipulate flows on all of those that creates different properties of the material that's coming out but it's continuously flowing on the timken side you've got metal bars that you got to slice down then yeah. you make them into a circle a ring basically right. then you've got to add in the interior parts you got to do finishing steps on it you also have to basically bake it at different temperatures to harden it so a lot more uh, detailed steps, again, that you can't just sit back and say on a computer monitor, where's everything at? I okay. mean, ideally you would, but uh, it gets a lot more difficult to do that. So the difference is that, that there are actually like pause points between each, Correct. each step. And that's exactly where you start to apply Lean Six Sigma around, you know, these these pockets of of no flow or extra inventory or excess inventory and trying to maximize the flow through the organization um, so that you can speed time to delivery for your customer while at the same time maintaining quality, right? Because you're doing quality checks all the way through it as well. And you use the phrase Kanban. What does yeah. that mean? So Kanban is basically a visual cue. Uh, it's a Japanese term for a visual cue that says um, there's, there's work that can be taken. So uh, in the simplest form in Timken, uh, a Kanban was where at the beginning of a cell, there would be uh, blocks on the floor, you know, squares on the floor. And if there's material in the square, that means you can work on that material. That's a simple Kanban. Okay. Right? So the, so the operator would know if there's something in that box, I need to grab it and start to work on it. And you use the phrase value stream. Yeah. So what does that mean? So value stream, so the, the example we use in the Value Institute is, uh, and I think it, it it bodes well to thinking it through is sort of like um, a grocery store, right? When you're shopping in the grocery store, you see vegetables and everything on the on the uh, shelves. 
but the total value stream is starting at the farm all the way through to the delivery to that grocery store. So when we talk about the value stream, it's all of those processes and steps in between. It's picking the fruit, it's delivering it to the warehouse, the warehouse distributes it, and then it ends up in the grocery store. And we talk a lot about, too, quality at the source, right? So if the fruit on the on the on the grocery store floor is uh, is in great shape. That means that we're really taking care of the fruit early on, all the way through the process. But if it's bruised, where are we where are we missing our quality at the source piece, right? So are we are we bouncing it around? Are we not boxing it properly? Is it getting uh, bounced around in the trucks? How is it getting bruised on the way through the value stream? And so trying to fix the problems early on in the value stream becomes a big premise around Lean Six Sigma improvement. So in 2008, you left Timken to briefly be the vice president of operations for Momenta Inc. in Northwood, which is I actually drove through on the way up here from UNH. So what happened with Momenta? So this is one of those examples of a time in my career where I took a risk. I decided to leave Timken to go to Momenta to be their VP of Ops. Uh, and the promise was uh, you know, being able to get partial ownership and a large market opportunity and do all of these great things. And so it was a risk-reward type decision. And I really hadn't taken any risks in my career to yeah. that point. And so I thought, you know what, I'm going to go for this. I'm going to try and do this. It's completely different as a consumer products company. Okay. Most, of the, most of the supplies were made in China, so it was really an outsource model. And what ended up happening, though, was I, I, you know, looking back, I don't think I asked enough questions on the front end to really know where the organization was at, because within two months, along with this, was at the time of the financial crisis that right. was going through. So, we we uh, ended up having to go into bankruptcy. So, you know, I was only there for four or five months before moving into bankruptcy, and they had to basically slash staff significantly. And I think. Uh, they've managed to come out of that, but okay. uh, it was an important lesson for me, I think, uh, around the risk-reward jumping in. But looking back, too, I don't regret it because it, it helped me end up at Dartmouth-Hitchcock, which is where I went from there. You left Momenta and came to Dartmouth-Hitchcock for the first time in 2009. And I've done a few interviews here at Dartmouth-Hitchcock with some other executives, but for listeners who haven't had the opportunity to listen to those, and before we kind of specifically talk about your role, let's talk a little bit about Dartmouth-Hitchcock to give a little bit of background. So what is Dartmouth-Hitchcock and what, does it, what makes it unique? So it's, so it's the only level one trauma center in New Hampshire, the largest hospital in New Hampshire. It's 396 beds, 9,000 plus employees, Got about 28 ORs here at the main site. And then in terms of affiliates, I don't know what our total count is, but you know, it's it's New London Hospital, Mount Escutney. I think there's eight to 10 now affiliates uh, that we have, including uh, the Visiting Nurse Association as well. So as a total system, it touches almost 2 million people across across New England. So a large, a large healthcare system. What makes it unique in in my opinion is its location it's it's probably the only academic medical center that is not in a large city right which presents opportunities and challenges i mean i think one of the challenges is then you know getting getting talent in a pipeline to to come up here is always a challenge for us but i also think one of the advantages is we we have we've developed a culture here that's i think very quality focused and patient focused as well and it's it's a culture too that i guess maybe it's sort of the yankee 
ingenuity background as well, but it's really a get-it-done attitude. And this place is pretty amazing when it gets focused on doing something and aligned on it. They can, it can really move mountains as well. So I think it's pretty unique in that regard. So what did you come to Dartmouth to initially do? So I started in supply chain at okay. Dartmouth, and what happened was uh, as, as Momenta was, um, was moving over into bankruptcy, uh, I, I found the opportunity up here uh, through, a, through a colleague I had had at Timken uh, who suggested I apply because they were looking for supply chain professionals. And so what happened was a, there was a new director of supply chain for Dartmouth Hitchcock who was really looking for people with industrial experience uh, that could bring that knowledge and those, you know, that process mindset to a healthcare organization. So first role was inventory and logistics manager, which meant I had the offsite warehouse, I had distribution of all supplies and linens, I had all of the OR inventory, I had the print shop. So pretty wide, wide swath of different groups. And that was really great because it exposed me to, you know, anywhere from the OR to, you know, the med surge units to the offsite warehouse and having a fundamental, uh, a warehouse that I was running as well. So it was, it was pretty great. So was this your first experience with healthcare, or you had been exposed to it at all before? I had I mean, had, other than as a patient. Yeah, I had no experience before at all. So it was my first, my first foray into into healthcare and services as well, because right, because you've been yeah, very true. That's that's very true. Yeah, it's okay. a, yeah, that's that's exactly right. It was uh, much more on the service side. So, so there was definitely a learning curve associated with that. But I think, too, because I had worked in specialty chemicals and aerospace and then a little bit before I into consumer products, I had already started to sort of internalize the thought processes around how do I shift gears in order to be able to translate what I'm doing. And it becomes much more about process than sort of industry, right? And so what are the, you know, the fundamental processes around supply chain don't really change. You're just moving different stuff, right? right. And so... So I, I was able to bring that over into the into the role, uh, and begin to begin to really build some uh, a solid team and be able to really make some great improvements. So what was that process like for you to make that adjustment? So I think the translation of sort of global supply chain and the fundamentals was was less hard because it, it it's a it's the same sort of network just on a smaller scale, right? So. I still had um, a supply location that was distributing product across across the the multiple locations like the hospital and then later we added the outpatient surgery center and then from there it was further distributed across the organization with individuals with uh, with doing carts and that sort of stuff for inventory so it was the fundamentals remain the same again just with the scale different I think my bigger challenge was more on the transition with the healthcare pieces and understanding the specific needs and who the customers were learning some of the ins and outs of you know how the OR functions and how med surge functions and different floors and all of the different specialty pieces around all of those because what was interesting is you know if I if I think back to um, my time as a global global supply chain manager and you think about these different customers and segmenting the customers we certainly didn't segment customers in terms of importance but each of them 
when you think about a large health corps organization, each of the departments is really kind of its own business. And in many cases, they have their own culture, they have their own norms. And of course, the business model is can be can be a bit different as well. So it really was thinking about who, who are my different businesses out there and the customers and how are their needs different across the organization? Because again, an outpatient clinic runs a lot different than the OR. So really trying to translate that and figure out what are the critical critically important to quality for those for those individual uh, individual groups. So it's not just like lead times and inventory now, it's different priorities Correct. For, for these organizations. That's right. Okay. Yep. Where was Dartmouth Hitchcock in terms of quality management when you arrived with respect to the manufacturing sector? I mean, obviously there was somebody here that valued that insight. Yeah, but I mean, but at the time, my exposure, I, I didn't get exposed to a lot of the quality management systems, sort of the classic ones that I would think about in terms of quality and patient safety at that time, because we were so focused over on the supply chain side. Certainly, we got we got involvement from them when we were working with particular vendors and we had issues with different supplies. That was where I would have the most direct uh, linkage with them. And I could help with that. And, and we had a lot of great success with working with uh, vendors around that. You know, you asked earlier about root cause analysis and really, so in my experience with aerospace and specialty chemicals and being able to ask the right questions of suppliers and drive at what what needs to be done right now in order to help us with uh, correcting quality issues was was important. And my time in uh, in Timken, you know, working with places like GE um, and Sikorsky and those those kinds of places, you, you know, if you're if you're not meeting quality, you really need to fix it quick, and and you know what kinds of questions you're going to get. And so I was able to bring that here as well around the the discipline uh, around being able to fix things, and then how to drive action with those vendors as well. So it was good. What was most rewarding about about this foray into healthcare for you? Well, there were so many opportunities. Uh, you know, I think. Um, the, the, the groups had done a great job with getting to a certain level of performance uh, and then myself and others were brought in as well with other other industry experience. We, we were able to just take it to the next level. So one of the first things we did in the off-site warehouse was, uh, and I did this with the whole warehouse team, was we redesigned the, the layout of the warehouse so that we had ABC items, right? So the A items are the ones that are moving on a regular basis every day that you're that you're picking and and shipping. And so we we revised the layout of the warehouse to to do one pass flow so that they could run through the warehouse in one pass and pick everything they need and put it on the truck, right? And so it's a real impact to the folks on the floor and their daily jobs for improving their work. And so there were so many different opportunities to do things like that. It was really satisfying. And people could feel that in their work right away as well. So that was probably the best the best part of it. So you actually left Dartmouth-Hitchcock in 2011 to join a company called Labsphere. And I think uh, we can let listeners know that everything works out OK in the end. Because you <laughs> do ultimately come back to Dartmouth-Hitchcock. Yes. Happy ending, yeah. uh, obviously, because we're sitting here. Yep. Um, but, but what drew you to Labsphere, and what kind of organization is it? Yeah, so Labsphere is a light measurement company. It's part of a larger company called Halma. And I was drawn to them because I, I, I made the decision to go back out into industry and it wasn't something where I was really looking, but the opportunity came along and it was 10 minutes away from my house and it's a larger company with lots of, lots of growth opportunities and so they wanted me to come and uh, run their supply chain and uh, their manufacturing group. 
Uh, and so I, I decided to, to leave Dartmouth-Hitchcock and go there. But uh, as I said, it's, um, it was one, one smaller company, part of a broader sort of holding company called Halma. And it was light measurement. So they make light measurement spheres um, that, are, that are used by anybody from um, your large aerospace companies to your academic uh, universities as well. And so, again, it was another exposure to a completely different industry. Most of their work is custom work, so building out fully customized systems based on the needs of their of their the specs provided by the customer. There are some some pieces of their business that are more uh, the standardized, but the bulk of it was really custom work. So you were at LabSphere for about two years, and then you did come back to Dartmouth Hitchcock. What was the opportunity that made you decide to make the jump back? Yeah, so this was this is a big turning point for me actually in my career. This is the first time that I actually made the decision to leave a job and go into another role based on what I really wanted to do, what I really love to do. You know, up until this time I had I had really made my decisions on what I think I should do, right? I should go for a management job, I should gain global global experience, I should go into another industry, right? This was where what do I really love to do? And so at, at, after I had left Dartmouth Hitchcock, they started up the Value Institute. And it was the place where uh, you know it's continuous improvement. It's you know, black belts working on the continuous improvement work and process improvement. And you know, back my very my very early stages of my career, I was the work I was doing, and I always loved it. And so uh, it really was the decision made to go and do something I love rather than something I I should do. So you came back as a senior value performance specialist. Correct. What is that? <laughs> <laughs> yes, the titles are not great. It's basically a senior consultant. So okay. it's a, you know, it's a it's a black belt senior consultant that uh, that is here. And, and and in terms of the role, the way the way the role works in the Value Institute is you spend about ten percent of your time developing and delivering curriculum, usually in our yellow belt and green belt programs. But we also do our essential elements workshops. Then twenty to thirty percent of your time is spent on coaching, coaching green belts that go through our green belt program. And then the rest of your time is could be consulting work or could be leading large-scale projects. And the, the consulting work could be helping people think through their strategic plans, helping them get projects off the ground, uh, but then also, again, helping to execute large-scale projects across the organization. So you've used, you've used the karate metaphor here, the black belt and green yes. belt. So yes. I, for folks who are not familiar with yeah. Lean Six Sigma, Correct. what does that mean? So, what are you saying when so, you say black belt? So yeah, so black belt are basically you've you've reached the level of knowing, understanding, and and using the tools of Lean Six Sigma so that you're considered an expert, right? Okay. And so there's different tiers of it. So white belt means you basically just know that it exists and you've had some a little bit of an exposure to it. Yellow belt is the next level up where you've participated on a green belt level team. You know how to do small PDSAs, which are plan, do, study, act, so small tests of change. And so you've had some exposure and training on those tools. Green belt is another level up from that, which is you can you have led or can lead projects that might be within your, typically just within your department. 
and you can uh, lead a team through that project, a team typically consisting of yellow belts. And then black belt is the next level up. There is one more level above that, just to throw more karate terms at you, (laughs) uh, is the master black belt, which is considered sort of the high-level expert. Um, There's not many master master black belts around. And, and what is the role of the master black belt? So the master black belt is really, that's, that's senior executive coaching, defining curriculum across the organization. Coaching black belts is a big, big piece of that, coaching and mentoring black belts. And really, you know, they're sort of the one that people could go to with all sorts of different issues, problems to help them think through as a black belt or green belt. So really they're, they're sort of, they call them sensei, right? So again, a Japanese sure. term, yeah. but yeah, it's sort of the highest level of expertise around that. Okay. How does one become each of these levels? Yeah, so there's actually a number of different ways. I mean, there's a, there's a lot of different online yellow belt classes available. We offer here at Dartmouth-Hitchcock uh, an in-person yellow belt as well as an online yellow belt course. So there's a difference between being trained and being certified as well in any of these. So Yellow Belt, you can, you can do the training a number of different places. In order to get certified through the Value Institute, we ask that folks either take part in a Green Belt class or they do small tests of change on their own or they take part in what we call rapid process improvement workshops. So and it's also called an RPIW. So that's a five-day workshop that's really focused on one particular area in the organization and we go through our what we call our DMAIC process which is what we teach in the Value Institute um, and that's our Lean Six Sigma methodology and so people can take part in one of those uh, RPIWs in order to get certified. And then the Green Belt as well. You go to Green Belt training uh, and there's a lot of different places that offer Greenbelt training. Again, the Value Institute offers classes, and ours is completely dedicated to uh, really just healthcare-related field. Um, But you do the five-day class, and then after you lead um, a Greenbelt project, then you become certified. We also have an alternative for people external to the organization if they want to get certified as a Greenbelt where they can uh, do a case study. Uh, that takes us through. It's actually our example is from some from of our some of our sepsis work that we did here as an organization that they can do the case study on the sepsis work. And then black belt is after green. How do you? Yeah, black, black belt. So we we don't um, we don't offer black belt training at the Value Institute. So we have a, a few different uh, organizations that we recommend people use to get certified. One is uh, the American Society for Quality. Villanova also has a really good program. Uh, and another one we use is called Morstein, which is a company that does a lot of uh, Lean Six Sigma training as well. So uh, we do certify black belts in the Value Institute. And what that means is you would go and get trained by one of these outside organizations. And then in order to be certified through the Value Institute, you will have had to coach a couple of green belts as well as deliver some of our curriculum. So learn and deliver the curriculum over the course of time as well. So so here at the Value Institute, you actually offer this training to employees of Dartmouth-Hitchcock and also outsiders. Correct. So, so I could come conceivably and take one of your classes. That's correct, and yeah. Get certified as, and get certified all the way up to green belt. Up to green belt. That's exactly right. Yeah, and we just started offering external sales of our classes last year, last November. Neat. 
And then master black belt, how does one become a master black belt, a certified master black belt? Yeah, or so... Is there, a, it, is there such a thing as a certification? There is. I mean, if you're going to get the designation of master black belt, you'll have to earn the certification, and the bar is just even higher, right? So the other portion of the black belt certification I didn't mention is you really need to have a portfolio of projects that you can show that you've accomplished as well, right? So then going to master black belt again, there's, there's a few programs out there that we... Would, that we would recommend people go to. Again, More Steam has a really nice master black belt program. ASQ has a program as well. But this is, it's, you have to have a portfolio of projects, you have to take an exam, and then there's typically written and oral interviews to make sure that you are a very strong subject matter expert and these are these are you know questions around how would you handle this situation? What would you do in this case? Right. And so it's it, the bar is significantly higher for a master black belt. Okay, so you came you came back uh, kind of backing up again. You came back yep. as a senior senior value performance specialist. So at that point, were you a black belt? I was not. This is one of those things where I I had never really just taken it upon myself to go and finish any kind of black belt certification. I got my green belt certification with Cabot in the 90s, and I didn't pursue it any further than that. I never really, I guess, saw the need to. I was always using the tools and and applying that thought process, but uh, I had never formalized it. So it was one of the first things I did in my role, and that was actually part of my first year goal was to get certified as a black belt. And so I did. I did it through American Society for Quality. And so in this role as uh, uh, that you took on coming back to Dartmouth, it seems like you had moved away from supply chain now specifically and more generally into quality. Is that, is that accurate? That's accurate, yes. Okay. Correct. What was that transition yeah. like for you then? It was, it was refreshing. <laughs> it was great, yeah. yeah. I mean, one of the reasons uh, that drove me back to do this kind of work was I had been doing productions for so long, right? And, the, and there's... There's a certain level of tension with production and trying to get product out and all of those things and, and, and that level of tension too with supply chain. So the opportunity to go and do things different from that. So, you know, doing some more working more with clinicians and even working with finance or it was just great to have this broad scope of, of possible work uh, was really exciting and be able to get out of just the supply chain piece. Right. And in fact, one of the projects that you worked on was the sepsis project, correct. right? Which actually made national news based on the the work that was done here at the, That's correct. At the hospital. Yep, definitely outside of supply chain. Yes, it uh, was. So, no doubt. so tell us a little bit about what what is sepsis and why is it a problem that the hospital was concerned about? Yeah. So, so first off, what is sepsis? So, sepsis is really here's the non-clinical person describing sepsis, right? Yeah, so, right, right. Uh, I mean, essentially, it's where you're... Non-clinical person, describe it to another person. <laughs> this will be, be great. Yeah. So essentially, though, it's where your body is, uh, is fighting an infection, and in order to really fight the infection, it starts to shut down other, other pieces of your body in order to, to be able to go after this, this infection that's attacking you. So it's sort of a full-body shock against that. And there's... there's uh, what we call a uh, bundles that are that have been developed that really, if if they're used at the right time, can really stop the onset of sepsis. And so that includes fluids and antibiotics uh, and testing a lactate and testing blood cultures. Right. So these are the bundles that firm up around it, and they have what's called a three-hour and a six-hour bundle. So. 
So that's a little bit about sepsis. It's a it's a huge problem across the U.S. and I and I can't remember the numbers, but it's it's millions of people that are affected by this every year that die from sepsis, and in addition to the cost of that too, right? The billions of dollars in costs. So it's a huge problem. There's a lot of initiatives that are going on around it. And back then, when we were starting this work. The organization, Dartmouth-Hitchcock, as a system, was really not doing well. Our bundle compliance was 6%, which is really, really low, which means if you stack all of the four components of the bundle on top of one another, that means 6% of the time they were getting our patients that had recognized as a potential for sepsis were only getting it 6% of the time, which is really not good. So there is a standard of treatment that that was already recognized in the industry. There was. Within healthcare. Yeah, yeah this three-hour so, bundle, which meant basically time is life. You know, if you can get this three-hour bundle, get these four components done in the three hours, you're going to significantly improve the chance of uh, survival rate. And every hour, the number that always sticks in my head, every hour that you don't get the uh, the bundle in to the patient, your your chance of your mortality rate increases by 8% every every hour. So it's really very real it's and not, very not time sensitive. Yeah. No, yeah. it's really not. And so we were we were not in a good place in terms of our performance as an organization. And so um, I was asked to, to jump in and be the lead on us uh, taking on improving our sepsis performance. And it was a, it was a fantastic opportunity to work with anesthesiologist named Andreas Tanzer, who is the organizational lead here. He's a, he's a physician here and was taking that lead with the High Value Healthcare Collaborative, which is the organization that our CEO, Jim Weinstein, had started up. And so what we did was we embarked on a journey to improve our, our three-hour bundle compliance, and which would result in you know reducing mortality. Uh, and we were working with a really short time window. Uh, and so we needed to be aggressive, but we also needed to sort of plan out our approach on how we were going to do it. And so we started in the ED and moved into the ICU. And I led some rapid process improvement workshops in both of those areas. We got great engagement from both teams there. And all the while, too, really setting our sights on how do we continue to spread this to our inpatient units and then how do we branch it out to um, our rural ambulatory groups and also our affiliate hospitals as well. And so it was a really great experience. And it's one of those where you mentioned, you know, that there's a sort of recognized standard around treatment. And that's true. And so if you think about, you know, we were talking about the different levels of belting. This project was, when you think about the technical aspects and the processes, it's kind of a green belt project. When you think about the change management pieces and all the things associated with that, it's a master black belt project. And we see that a lot in healthcare where the technical pieces are not that not that uh, difficult and not yeah. that um, you know you know what needs highly to be done. technical. Yeah, the challenge is how do you plug it into your existing processes? Right. How do you make sure everybody's on board because you've got so many different people touching the processes and sometimes there's not even a process to plug into. And how are you gonna how are you gonna work it with uh, with a lack of process? So in this case, it wasn't a question of we've got to come up with a new cure. It was. We we know what the cure is. Right. We just need to figure out how to get how to deliver it. Yeah. To that's co- right. Because it is a cooperative. Right. It's a team sport. That's right. right. Yeah. Well, and it became a real question of process capability, right? So if you've got three hours to get all this stuff into your patient, what's your what's your capability to deliver anything you're doing right now in the ED or the ICU, right? And so if your if your door to IV time today is five hours you're going to have a really hard time doing a three-hour bundle on your 
on your patients, right? When you say so, door to door to IV time, you mean from the time I walk in and say I don't feel so good, yep, to the time I actually you have an IV in your arm, diagnose yeah. me, and then have me exactly in a bed right. and put an IV yeah. in my arm and start that bundle process. Correct. Yeah. Okay. So it was really around that is what what's the current process capability for getting fluids in the into the patient, getting antibiotics into the patient, and so that was really our focus around the processes for delivery, and so we started to do baseline work with the ED around just trying to get a sense of where we were at today. And so it was, but it was really exciting work. I mean, it was, it was, it was so much fun doing, doing that kind of work. And then as we, you know, we started to build momentum around the successes we were having and really looking at the processes and improving those processes. And that snowballed into work into the ICU and we, we were able to see great success from it. You, so you were very successful with this process. Where, uh, what was the end state with the sepsis project? So we ended up cutting our mortality by over half. So you know that that translated into, uh, you know that when you say fifty percent reduction in mortality, actually I think it was more like seventy percent reduction in mortality what we ended up with, but it's like more than twenty lives a year saved with this with this work that was done, uh, and we were able to do it in you know less than a year and. If you look at other organizations that were able to move their three-hour bundle compliance from like 6% to 70%, it took them five years. We did it in six months. So it was pretty incredible, incredible work and outcomes that we were able to achieve. What allowed that to happen? So a combination of things. First off was sort of leadership clearing a path. I mean, Jim Weinstein, our CEO, was very much dedicated to, to making this a success. And so the the high level leader sponsorship was really important my partner andreas tanzer having him there to be the clinical knowledge and to help drive things as well as uh, karen chandler from our quality and safety group as well as uh, bringing her nursing knowledge as well so having the right sort of core group to drive this was really critical so that again we could split up we know what each of our superpowers is, right? So to so to to speak, right? And so that was another piece. And then the third piece was having a plan and engaging staff in the right way. So we were really thoughtful as we thought about how we were going to move this across the organization. We started in the ED, but we brought in folks from the ICU onto the ED team. And then as we were doing the ICU work, we were bringing people from the inpatient side in, right? So sort of planting the seeds of where we were going to go next and thinking about what the challenges might be to move it there was really important. And then we were very generous with our information. We did a lot of uh, what we did sepsis road trips and went to Wentworth Douglas and other hospitals to really talk about our successes and our challenges so that other people could could learn from it. So you had two rather quick promotions after you came back to Dartmouth-Hitchcock, first from Senior Value Performance Specialist to the Director of Performance Improvement and then to the Director of Operational Excellence. How has your role evolved and can you kind of talk about what is, what is the Director of Operational Excellence role now? Yeah, so I first moved into the Director of Performance Improvement, which meant that I ran the Performance Improvement Group. And so that is um, the Black Belts, but that also included our Value Institute Learning Center. So if the Value Institute had started out as just the programs of our Green Belt and Yellow Belt, and then it morphed into becoming really the name for the whole division. So as Performance Improvement, as Director of Performance Improvement, I owned the Value Institute Learning Center, which was the, the training programs, but also the the black belt team that was doing consulting, coaching, and, and curriculum development and delivery. And then with the operational excellence role, 
that added the project management office, which had been in the organization for a while, and they decided to combine it all under one role, which became the director of operational excellence. And so when you think about operational excellence, I would define as having uh, linkages all the way through from your strategic plan and strategy deployment all the way down to your daily management system and standard work associated with all of those so that you can execute against your strategies in a very real way and also see um, how all of those components are performing across the organization. So that's today what we're very much focused on is what are the processes, systems, and standards that are gonna allow us to execute as a system uh, now and into the future. So what kind of role does your organization perform on behalf of the larger Dartmouth-Hitchcock system? Yeah, so really we, there's a couple of different things. So the first piece, if I think about what we're focusing on for FY17, the first is we're still very much involved in quality improvement and patient safety, so we have a lot of work going on around our hacks, our hospital-acquired conditions. So last year, we put together a work group that had folks from my team and folk, folks from the quality and safety team to reduce CLAPSI, which is central line infections. And we've been able to reduce those, again, bringing to bear the, the Lean Six Sigma methods and the clinical areas of expertise, we've been able to reduce our CLAPSI by over 60% in a two-year time frame, which is pretty amazing improvement. We've spread that now to other uh, hospital-acquired conditions work around C. diff and CAUTI uh, and somewhat in pressure ulcers as well, and we're hoping to get the same outcome uh, of, of that kind of work as well. So that's one piece that we're really focusing on. Uh, we also have a new Office of Patient Experience that's been added to the Value Institute, so we're partnering closely with them. And there's two different ways that I think our group really accelerates improvement. One is by driving things through the Value Institute Learning Center. So for instance, we're working with the patient experience group around journey mapping. So building the capability around patient journey mapping, and that's really around what's the patient experience like for when they come to Dartmouth-Hitchcock and flow through our systems, and where do we have opportunities to improve their total experience there, right? So a journey map is what how, how I interact with the organization if I'm a patient from Correct. a patient perspective? Yeah, it's what we would call a voice of the customer process uh, when we think about Lean Six Sigma terms. But yeah, it's very much getting the voice of the patient as they go through and interact with all of our processes, people, and systems at Dartmouth-Hitchcock and what are the what's working well, what are the areas for improvement, and how are we going to sort of continuously optimize that uh, that process and how patients experience it. So observations from patient the patient experience office are cycled into your teaching here? Is that what Yeah, that's exactly what we're going to be moving towards is we're, we're building out a fundamental program around uh, training to do patient journey mapping, and then we're going to be looking to integrate that into our yellow belt and green belt programs as well. Because, you know, and this gets into a whole other area that we haven't really touched on, but it's, it's bringing to bear the patient's voice and patient's experience on uh, process improvement work. I think there's a couple of organizations around the country, healthcare organizations, that do it pretty well. Industry, you know, my experience at Cab and my experience at Timken did it, did it really, really well, bringing the customer to the table. But the, the challenge, I think, for healthcare is a patient doesn't know what's behind the curtain, right? They only see the front end of it. And so if I bring somebody like GE to help me with how I'm building ball bearings or, you know, 
that's a they have a much different perspective and much different sure. knowledge, right? Sure. It's very translatable, and they know manufacturing processes. The patient doesn't know what's behind the curtain. So how do we help the patient to think about things in a different way that we can really leverage it to do improvement work in the organization? And we're getting better at that, but I think we still have a ways to go. Can you describe what are the subordinate organizations that or, uh, or departments that report to you now? Yeah, so there's three main components. The first is the Value Institute Learning Center, and that is, uh, again, that's our, that's our curriculum development and delivery. And that group is, is mostly uh, supported by our performance improvement team, which is the second group that I have. And that's around 10 individuals, 10 to 12 individuals in that group, and these are our black belts. Uh, doing continuous improvement and process improvement work across the organization. The third group is the project management office. And so these are folks that are senior senior type level project managers. And what I would say in terms of distinguishing between the two is when you think about performance improvement, that's where you have a project, you don't know exactly how to solve it, the root causes are unknown, and so you've got to embark on a process to understand root causes and then put in countermeasures to eliminate those root causes. Project management office is, I need to build a hospice, right? I need to implement some known best practice, right? So that's the difference between the two. They, they have their own set of disciplines and tools and templates that they're going to use. There's still going to be change management on both sides, um, but the needs are a bit different in terms of how they're filled for our customers. And so that's the distinguishing feature between the two. And those are the three key groups that I have. And then patient experience, where does that fit in? So that's still under the Value Institute. That's head by, headed up by Carol Majewski here. Okay. And uh, we all work for George Blake, the chief quality officer. Okay, great. Just, I just want to ask a couple questions about quality for a second. Mm-hmm. What's the difference between Six Sigma and Lean? Some folks I've talked to uh, in the quality field don't blend the two together, and, but sometimes I hear about Lean Six Sigma Black Belt. So your program, I believe, is a blended program. Is that That's correct. correct. So yeah. is there a difference, and what does that mean? There is a difference. So when we talk about Lean, I, the first thing I think about is the eight wastes, right? And so these are wastes of time, inventory, Typically, people say downtime, and each of those letters in the downtime represents a different kind of waste. And lean is really focused on value creation, so eliminating the waste and maximizing the value creation for a customer. So when we talked about value streams, you might look at a total value stream and see how much time is spent actually creating value for a customer in that value stream. And lean really focuses on maximizing the value add, and value is defined by the customer. So maximizing the value add in that process or value stream and minimizing the waste across it. So that's the lean side. The Six Sigma side, to me, is more like the math side. That's more along along the lines of statistical process control, bringing to bear how are you understanding the variation in your processes, how are you reducing or eliminating that variation in the processes. And that's really the math behind it as well. So you can say statistically that the process is in better control, has a lower level of variability. So the reason Six Sigma and, and uh, Lean were blended is because it brings the best of both worlds. It's value creation, but then also the statistical uh, process control piece that, Lean, that Six Sigma brings to marry those two. And our program touches on both. What do you worry about as the Director of Operational Excellence? Two things. The first is talent pipeline. I think the, the biggest, one of the biggest challenges we had, I, mean, you know, I mentioned that we're sort of up here in the woods as an academic medical center. That means it's tough for us to get and retain talent. And there's 
that's a limited resource as well. So that's that's a number one thing is making sure that I can maintain a talent pipeline to be able to support the organization. The second one is, are we moving fast enough and we're doing all of the right things? I mean, we've been on this journey in the Value Institute since 2011. We've, we've come a long way and made huge progress in so many areas. But how can we accelerate it and how can we continue to do more in light of, you know, there's more and more pressures around cost and everything else and quality across all of healthcare. And so that's the other piece I worry about is making sure that we can, that we can keep up and building the capabilities in order to be able to keep up. I wanted to talk to you a little bit about leadership specifically. So what would you say is your leadership philosophy? Yeah, so I... I, when you when you say leadership philosophy, it makes me think of a couple of quotes that stuck with me early on in my career. And the first one was, um, "The purpose of a manager is to make stars, not to be one." Uh, and so that one has really stayed with me my whole career. Is it's really about building the capabilities not only of your organization but of your people, and and getting them ready for the next level, and and really seeding the organization to to make it better. So that's one. The other one is just really around what I learned, again, with my first role as an engineer is, you know, the answers, it's kind of like the, uh, I think it's the X-Files, the answers are out there, right? right. The, 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 the people that really know how to improve the work are the ones that are doing the work, right? And really being foundational on that around, you know, trust your people to be able to improve it and figure it out. And sometimes they're going to need your help and they're going to need mentorship and they're going to need coaching. But fundamentally, you know, if you've, if you've got the right people and you're growing them and giving them a skill set and coaching, they're going to be able to figure it out and move forward with it and, and listen to those folks that are doing the work because, because they know and they're the ones that are going to have to continue to do it after you're, after you're gone as well. So those are, I think, two, two sort of core philosophies I have around leadership. And then I think the other, the other two, I think about authenticity and um, being authentic around what who you are and, and what you're good at and maybe what you're not so good at, right? And leveraging folks around you to to help you with those other pieces as well. And the last is certainly integrity. I think maintaining integrity throughout all of this because there can be challenging times in any in any leader's career and role wherever you are as well. So you've been in a managerial role where you have been overseeing other leaders for a while. Mm-hmm. What do you look for when you hire a leader? And what do you look for to when you evaluate a leader? Yeah, so I think er, the, there's a first first piece, right? Is sort of the the minimum qualifications around sort of some technical te- technical competency. If I think about leaders we have for this organization, right? So there's a there's a minimum competency around the technical capabilities and and understanding Lean Six Sigma and project management, all of those sort of fundamental skills, right, that that they should have as as the baseline. From there, it really notches up to comfort with ambiguity, facilitation and soft skills are really important, right? So I mentioned early on around being able to really talk to somebody and create partnerships. You know, I'm an engineer and if I think about an engineer's engineer, that's not what I really need in my organization. I mean, that means I've got a ton of technical skills, but I don't have the soft skills I need in order to be able to work with anybody from a nurse to somebody in uh, central sterile reprocessing, right? So 
So what I really look for with with and anybody that I hire into my group, I consider is going to be a leader because they're going to be interacting across the entire organization with anybody from an executive VP to somebody who's floor staff, right? So they represent the Value Institute and therefore in, in their own way, they're a leader in setting the tone. And so the soft skills are really important, being able to work and listen uh, and not being uh, sort of arrogant in our approach, but really... Uh, Trying to trying to figure out what the right approach is with anybody that they're working with. Where do junior leaders most often make mistakes? You think? As I think about when I was a junior leader, I think one of the watchouts for junior leaders is to really understand if if you're if you're setting about on a on a goal or a journey, whatever you're going to do with your teams making sure that you have the capability there in order to do it. I think so many times I see people talking about their strategy and how they want to how they want to execute their strategy without really understanding their capabilities and what they're really going to need in order to be able to achieve that strategy. And so really you've got to do a deeper dive into your organization to really understand what's what's there for capability and where everybody is at and not make too many assumptions at sort of a higher level to think that you can just start on this start on this strategy or or goal and be able to achieve it. So really pressure testing and understanding what's what's reasonable versus what is really going to be pie in the sky and that comes from having a deep understanding of your organization and the processes and the realities of that organization. And that's really important. So in closing, what advice do you have for early careerists who'd like to work in quality improvement and or operational excellence? So I think if you have not had any exposure to quality improvement, I would, if you're, if you're serious about really finding out about it, I would talk to your supervisor, manager, your boss, and look for opportunities to get a yellow belt or green belt certification. Certainly, we'd love for you to come to the Value Institute to do that. But, you know, I think, you know, starting off with maybe getting your yellow belt or green belt and doing a project and seeing if this is something that that you're interested in. Some people do it and they they enjoy it, but it's not really what they want to do longer term. We have others where, you know, they drink the Kool-Aid and they are, they love it and they don't want to ever stop doing it. And so those are the folks that end up maybe joining our team as well, you know, because they like it so much. So I think getting some exposure, some real exposure to it and, and seeing if it's something that's of interest to you is probably the right way to go. If nothing else, you're going to come away with a great skill set and be able to uh, think about things in a different way and help your organization uh, as you move forward. Thank you so much for your time today. Thank you. You've been listening to the Health Leader Forge, a joint production of the College of Health and Human Services at the University of New Hampshire and the Northern New England Association of Healthcare Executives. Please go to our website, healthleaderforge.org, for more information or to leave comments about today's podcast. Look for Health Leader Forge podcasts on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and other podcast distribution sites. Thanks for being a part of the Health Leader Forge community, and we'll talk with you again in about two weeks.